This is the Ritz and Cures podcast. Welcome to Ritz and Cures for this week. And our special guest tonight is Professor Kelsey Hegarty. She's a GP and a researcher specialising in family violence. And her PhD involved a groundbreaking study conducted in GP waiting rooms around Australia, which documented for the first time the appallingly high rate at which women experience family violence. She's gone on to work with the World Health Organization to develop best practice guidelines in family violence intervention. She'll be our guest in around half an hour. And in our soapbox segments, we'll be looking at whistleblowing, not just in the public service and the public sector, which is covered, of course, by IBAC, but in the private sector as well. Just what do you do if you are in a private company and you suspect wrongdoing. Sitting with me tonight in the studio are Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea. Hi, Bill. Hi, Lindy. Nice to see you. And for the first time this year, Melbourne GP Nick Carr. Hello, Nick. Happy New Year. Oh, thank you. We were talking <laughs> off here about whether or not you're allowed to say Happy New Year when it's February 21 or something. So. Chinese New Year. You're closer to that. Yes. Yeah, so maybe I've been that's told it. off already. It didn't take long. <laughs> it's really good to have you back. So nice to see you. Thank you. So, Bill, whistleblowing in the private sector, why is, that, why is it a difficult thing to do? Well, um, many people are aware that if they're in the private, in the public sector or in the public service, um, uh, and they're worried about a disclosure, particularly in the workplace, they can refer it directly to the independent broad-based anti-corruption commission, IBAC. Why, what do you mean by disclo- uh, disclosure? Is that well, what you said? if they believe there's misconduct going on and they're worried about, say, telling their boss, or if the misconduct was in fact the boss or someone above the boss and they don't feel that it would be in their interest to report it because it could affect their ongoing employment or their future, uh, they can go directly to IBAC. And IBAC operates under the Protected Disclosure uh, Act of legislation that guarantees whistleblowers' protection in the public sector. That means it's a criminal offence to take... Uh, uh, detrimental action, uh, if you like, uh, revenge or uh, vilification against a whistleblower merely because they were a whistleblower so that you get protection and you can get some anonymity as well. Now, if you work for a private company, um, IBAC doesn't apply unless the private company has a government contract and there's misconduct in the course of performing the government contract. Okay, so if I'm working for, well, any of Seven West Media. Yeah, well, that's an interesting (laughs) example at the moment. Let's use one of the large mining companies to start. Yeah, and you're worried about misconduct? Yeah. So you you believe, them? for example, there might be fraud or there might be uh, breaches of, uh, uh, in the case of a listed company, uh, continuous disclosure. Can I just say here, we're completely making this part up. Yeah, we're making it up. It's a hypothetical. It's totally hypothetical. So so you think that, you know, the the stock exchange hasn't been told price-sensitive information it should have been told, uh, a breach of the uh, ASX rules or the Corporations Act. What do you do about it? Well, um, if, of course, what you should do is talk to your superior uh, or you should, or the company should have a disclosure officer in the business who employees can go to. But the whole point is, if this is happening, you can't go to your superior because that's likely to be the person who's causing the trouble. Well, yeah. now, yes, that's yeah. right. And the Seven West case is a classic example of that. So what do you do? Well, arguably, you could go to the board. Um, uh, if it was actually fraud, you could take it outside and talk to the police because a fraud's a criminal offence and police deal with criminal offences. 
as opposed to breaches of the Corporations um, Act, which are not always criminal. So there are, there are, there's those remedies. But just before I get to the main one I want to talk about, it's, it's a, um, a legal requirement for every company in Australia to have a system to, re, to receive disclosures from people who work in the company. It's not something you do because you believe in best practice. It's actually a requirement of the Corporations Act that every company does it. But I bet some do better than others. Some they would. Of, some would just be completely token Small gesture. companies, you know, the, the Mar and Par show with two employees, probably difficult. But, yeah, a lot of companies would not be aware of their uh, Corporations Act requi- uh, disclosure requirements and the protection of basically whistleblower protection uh, obligations. So the company has to have a policy, and the policy would normally be to nominate a member of the one employee as the protected disclosure officer, and you would promulgate that on the intranet and even in some cases on the internet for the company, saying that if you have an issue relating to governance or or something you think isn't right, this is the person you go to. No, so uh, even in your practice. Well, I was, I was about to say, I don't want to dob myself in as but a defaulter on this, but yeah. I run a small business with 20 or so employees uh, in a medical practice. I've never even heard of this. Are you we, incorporated? Yes. Oh. And, I'd, uh, and uh, I've never heard of this legislation. I we bet you're not the only one. And that's why I'm asking, because yeah. uh, I, I wonder how many other small businesses have no idea well, of their obligations. Because my question was going to be to build, how, how is this even policed? Not by the police, but, but how, I mean, you wouldn't know that someone wasn't abiding by that requirement until you find out, perhaps because somebody's doing some whistleblowing, to outside the company, then it gets investigated and they find that there's no pathway mm. instigated. If employees felt that um, there was no avenue for them to raise concerns about misconduct because the company doesn't have a process for doing it, um, the company's arguably in breach of the Corporations Act and that would entitle that employee to go to ASIC. And that's my next point, that ASIC is in fact the de facto IBAC in the private sector if we're talking about a breach of the Corporations Act. So ASIC stands for the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. Right, which is the regulator of all private and public companies in Australia. Um, and so so you shouldn't feel, because you work in a, in a private or a public company that is not a government entity, that you have no IBAC to protect you. In fact, um, uh, the Corporations Act in Part 9 lays down in four very easy-to-read sections, unlike most of the rest of the corporations sector, I've got to tell you. But they're very easy to read, and they set out what are the requirements for a company to, uh, to provide that system and how a whistleblower reports misconduct. See, I think... I haven't read that, remarkably enough. But I think that in some instances, particularly the smaller companies, you would find that the pathway of making a complaint or, or, or trying to bring it to the attention of others above you, that this is the way you're being treated or you've discovered that this person is acting in this way, which is either in breach of the Corporations Act or in breach of the you know, in criminal law, uh, it, is the pathway is via the person that they perhaps may be That's the problem. Dobbing their, su- their supervisor. A recent case I had, the person went two rungs higher 
because they wanted to jump over the supervisor because the supervisor was a someone they, they really didn't – that's the other issue, didn't trust with the protected information. But in a lot of small businesses, there is not going to be a supervisor. And in mm. my business, for instance, there are two bosses. There is no one else. Mm. Um, so if we were doing something wrong um, – I imagine that a staff member would have to go outside. So you're saying the outside place would be ASIC, is that right? Well, it would depend on what the misconduct was. If it was professional conduct, in your case, it would be to the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Authority, APRA, because if they thought that a doctor was misbehaving professionally, they have an avenue there. But if, for example, you were... They were misappropriating funds. Yeah, or overcharging or... um, you know, um, I don't know, uh, uh, not operating Medicare billing appropriately, um, then clearly um, there are are all sorts of, I mean, there's the Health Insurance Commission, there's Medicare who would take a complaint like that. But certainly if it was anything that looked like misleading and deceptive conduct by directors of a company, um, that would be um, something that ASIC would be happy to receive. But if if it's something such as sexual harassment or any other kind of that harassment, any kind of them. bullying, then who's who's caring about that outside of the well, that company? Well, that's fair work. If it's uh, an allegation of bullying the Fair Work Commission. Um, now, the interesting thing about reporting to Fair Work is, for example, on bullying, Fair Work won't accept anonymous complaints, whereas ASIC will. So, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll correct that. Um, uh, fair Work says you have, have to, uh, you can't make an anonymous complaint complain about bullying, um, if there was, um, if it was research misconduct, for example, in a hospital or a university, that can be done without uh, identifying yourself because that, it's an objective thing. The figures are being falsified. Uh, you don't need to... Back it up. Yeah, it, 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 to, the figures themselves yeah, are hopefully we'll going to. The themselves. records will speak for themselves. But if you want to claim bullying, you can't do it anonymously. A fair work won't accept the complaint. You have to put your name to it, but of course they will protect you but they won't accept those sorts of complaints. Is that still called whistleblowing? Like if you if it's if effectively you're, whistleblowing. But if you're mm. you know because you're kind of blowing the whistle on someone's treatment of you at a personal level. It's not really whistleblowing. Whistleblowing is normally reserved for um, corp, uh, uh, corporate misconduct. Uh, corruption. Corruption, correct. And there's a definition of corruption yeah. in the Act. Uh, There's yeah, a, right. a really great text that I want to – it's kind of bringing up something that I was going to bring up later, but they've texted now, so let's address it. In the real world, Bill, this is rubbish, a la 7-Eleven, Domino's, you know, cases that we've been hearing of, the list goes on. Uh, cash payback of honest wages being a good example of the so-called whistleblower's pathway, that, that things don't actually change. Well, the answer for the employees of the franchisees in – in 7-Eleven, and that's what they were. They were franchisees who employed these overseas students in the, and they were clearly upset at the way they, they were being rorted in the workplace. Now, of course, going to the franchisee is not going to get you anywhere. You'd probably be sacked. Uh, where could they go? Well, arguably they could go to the uh, head office. Maybe not so hot an idea, but they could have gone to ASIC. It's ASIC who in the end have, have are dealing with 7-Eleven, among other 
organisations, including Fair Work for underpayment. But there, are, if they'd gone outside the organisation, they might but well have I, done. But if I can be devil, devil's advocate on behalf of our texter, what I would understand that person saying is, if if I'm an overseas student being paid eighteen dollars an hour, I don't have access to maybe fantastic English language skills or backup mm, from exactly. middle class parents who are going to subsidise me if I lose my job. Mm. How on earth do I go down that sort of a path? Yeah, mm. or even know that it exists. Yes. Well, I agree, and I, I don't think this is really why I'm bringing it up tonight. I don't think many people really know that there are whistleblower protections in the Corporations Act. I mean, it's a, it's something we just associated with. We associated with misbehaviour in the public sector. You know, pub, public servants rorting the system, and they end up in IBAC, and you read about it in the courts, and they're put in prison for stealing public money. But in fact, there are just as many protections for breaches of the Corporations Act. Now, okay, I accept that it's a power imbalance and it's very hard for students like that. And I think it's sort of why we have community legal centres. Um, you know, you could go to a community legal centre at no cost, tell them about what's going on and leave it to them. You don't have to be in personally involved in the matter if you can get some support. And I, I agree. I mean, no... Um, no foreign student's going to go and instruct a private lawyer and pay the legal fees but, but to you protect said, themselves. You said you don't have to be personally involved in the matter. So can we be really clear about that? So if I'm a, uh, feeling exploited in the workplace as a young person, underpaid, doing shifts that should be paid on public holidays mm. more than I am, if I go to a, a public legal centre... Could they take that matter on without me having to be named? And no, having... you'd have to be named, but you wouldn't have to necessarily be directly involved in the report. They would do it on your behalf, and you would give your consent to them. How much protection is there for that person? So as soon as not I'm losing named, their job, I lose my job, don't I? Yeah. Well, you can't lose your job because that would be um, that would be an offence under, for example, under the Corporations Act for taking basically detrimental action against someone who was reporting misconduct. So. Um, there's no reason necessarily why in the 7-Eleven case it would be sheeted home to any particular franchisee. Or, I mean, the thing was that system of operating uh, underpaying workers was widespread uh, across 7-Eleven. So it really is something that if ASIC got it, they wouldn't be going necessarily to the franchisee. They'd be going to head office and saying, what's going on with your franchisees? You I mean, know, it's really good to know that there is an avenue for people uh, who are not just in the public service, and I think that's a really important message. Yeah. And the other message is, I need to sort out my workplace. You do. You've learned a lot from this conversation. There's a text from uh, Colin Andrew, who's with the Mediation Centre in Bentley, saying all workplaces should have a dispute resolution process that involves mediation as well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a step that we've not really talked about. Yeah. Often, often that is the way to resolve it. Um, if the person who's complaining is happy to have the discussion with the person being complained about, you'll need a mediator to sort it out. And often an external mediator is better because they're not seen as on one side or the other. Another text that says, I was bullied by a CEO and his bosses. A committee of management fair work uh, put my case to the organisation to answer, but the legislation had the option for them not to respond. I had to go on to work cover to get out of a very toxic workplace. Mm. So and I think that it's the emotional trauma attached with to, to going through this sort of a process as well that I mean it's you usually by the time you're making these kinds of um complaints of of whistleblowing in this form you you're almost at the end of your tether anyway you feel mm. as though you have nowhere else left to turn so you're kind of emotionally distraught 
at that point and then having to be put through what is often an incredibly arduous task. And I think the majority of times you would end up not being a member of staff at that organisation anymore, perhaps even at your own behest because it's just intolerable to stay Well, I mean, underpayment of young people's wages is a classic example. You know, the hospitality industry, in at least in Melbourne, in my experience, the, the underpayment of award wages for young people in hospitality is rampant. Yes. And they are all concerned that if they report it, they'll lose the yep. only way they can make any money while they're a student. Uh, now, there are ways of reporting that. And, in fact, what the courts do when they get onto it is they fine the employer and give the money to the employees. So that's happened in a number of cases. But you need, you need someone acting for you. You need a, like a community legal centre or a pro bono firm who'll do it no win, no fee for you, um, where they can, they can really take on the hard stuff. Because it's how do you expect a second-year commerce student um, to take on an employer who, who's paying them the basic rate for working all day Sunday? Uh, and then the, you know, the employer goes out and jumps into the fancy uh, Jaguar out the back and drives off home. I mean, it's very, de- very, very depressing uh, for young people and something that we, you know, there should be protection for them. And do you realise that we haven't dealt with the single most important issue here, which is where does the term whistleblower actually come from? Hmm. I well, know. I think I, I might ask Dr Nick. Do you, do you <laughs> so it comes from the US police force who used to blow the whistles to indicate that something bad was happening. Oh, right. right, so they would. It was that simple thing. Simple as that. Blowing a whistle, feep, feep, said yeah. something's going on. Mm. Capture that man. There's a bad person. I bad name is they still do that. So, the, so well, the English bobbies certainly used to oh. in my day. When yeah, I was a kid. Just, that's my impression in my. That head. was the only weapon they had was a whistle and a yeah, truncheon. truncheon. And do you know why they're called bobbies? No, I don't know that one. Too well, they were named after oh, Sir Robert Peel. Is that right? They were peelers, and because he was Robert, they called them bobbies. We'll have to rename this the etymology show. Please don't. This is Ritz and Cures, <laughs> and uh, you can learn pretty much anything. In a moment, you're going to meet an extraordinary researcher and a GP whose specialty is family violence, but particularly best practice in terms of family violence intervention. <laughs> Good to have you along for Roots and Cures tonight. And our special guest with Bill O'Shea and Nick Carr is Professor Kelsey Hegarty. Kelsey is the first Australian Joint Chair of Family Violence Prevention at the University of Melbourne and the Royal Women's Hospital. She's a general practitioner and an academic who is passionate about improving the safety of women and children by intervening early when family violence is happening. And her research focuses on changing the health system to support practitioners to identify and respond to family violence and testing of online tools for early intervention. She's worked closely with the World Health Organization to develop guidelines for best practice in this area. But in particular, it was the research that she conducted during her PhD to get some of that data that completely fascinates me. Kelsey, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming in. How does somebody who started life as a GP become involved in the area of family violence? Was this something that came as a result of some of the conversations you were having within the clinic itself or was this something from outside? Well, I actually think it came from the media. I was reading stories about one in four and I was a pretty touchy-feely GP in Brisbane at the time and I thought, I'm not seeing one in four women 
you know, who had domestic violence. Well, I was seeing a lot of people with depression or anxiety, but I wasn't asking the question. And so for my PhD, I asked people in waiting rooms, I asked them had they experienced physical, emotional and sexual violence. And I got the answer, you know, that in fact, those combined sorts of abuses, which is often what we think of as domestic violence, not just a hit, you know, where there's controlling tactics. We've been talking about power and control before, you know, but when there's a combined physical, emotional and sexual abuse, that's about one in 10 women attending general practice. Wow. Absolutely. And half of those have severe combined abuse, something like forced to have sex or can had a just, knife or gun. Can we just say this again? Okay, go back. So a combined physical, experience. emotional and or sexual violence. That, and one in ten people that women, women. that you asked yeah. within the waiting room area, yeah. they weren't necessarily telling their GP right. or their GP asking them. I was one of those GPs before, so they were experiencing that then and like at in the, the time, last twelve months. In the last twelve months, yes. So when you sat down to ask them that question, in that I was sitting in a waiting room at a doctor surgery on Monday, and the thought. I can't imagine how they how so anyone in a survey. Okay, it was in a survey. Right. And so women are more likely to answer those surveys than to answer questions because yes. they fear judgmental attitudes. Indeed. And sometimes they get them. So when you do that, but I was going to go on and say 5% of them, uh, you know, have severe combined abuse, which is either an episode of being forced to have sex or had a knife or gun against them or locked up in a bedroom or kept from medical care. And for us, we think of that as not us. But this was in randomly selected general practices across the socioeconomic spectrum. So All over Australia? That, that was in Brisbane, um, but I repeated it in Victoria across regional and uh, uh, urban Victoria. And to be so, clear, and these were not selected women. These no, were no. women who just happened to be in a GP surgery. Presenting could for been, whatever. They yeah. could have been there for a cough or a cold yeah. or with their child. Yeah. Perhaps me. What about the age range? Did you look at so that? So it, it is more likely to occur the younger you are. Um, it's it's Maybe it burns out or maybe it changes. But certainly, and in the, in the population studies, uh, certainly the highest age group is 16 to 24 years. But I think I want to move on from how common it is. Like I did that yeah, a long is. time yeah, ago. It's and, just what and, it is. and we actually, what do but we do it's about really it? good figures to be able to say to a GP when I'm doing training, this is what's likely to be in your practice. And then to t- also do the next set of studies I did was about the health effects. And, you know, everybody's thinking of the black eye, but it's actually, you know, that they've got depression or anxiety or they've got chronic pain or they're attending frequently for themselves or their children. Yeah. And what about the children? Have you looked at I worry about the children, children Bill. <laughs> yes. Mm. So the effect on children, and we've known this for a long time as well, is as um, uh, damaging as direct child abuse. So witnessing or hearing or experiencing your parents having domestic violence has almost you know, exactly the same effect as direct child abuse. So it has social and behavioural and um, uh, they present with exactly similar symptoms of not being able to sleep and also um, issues like bedwetting and behavioural problems. And it's that's all very, very clear that it's common and it affects women and children. So is the, is the bottom line... These are people who are frightened all the time. Yeah. So imagine your loved one turns into someone who intermittently is either trying to control you, not let you out of the house or controlling what you're doing with your finances or hitting you intermittently 
or forcing you to do sexual acts that you don't want to do. And then often is sorry for doing that. But it's it's like this vicious cycle and it keeps going. It's not like, you know, it's happened once like a stranger forced to have sex. It's ongoing and chronic and people are traumatised and, and they, they're really fearful. Do you think that they still love that partner? They, they do because, of course, part of the problem is that, that there is elements that's not all bad. You know, it's not like these people are monsters. They just look like us, you know. Is socioeconomic status relevant to this? Does it go go across all levels of income? It does go across all levels of income. There are pockets where there's combinations of poverty. um, And when we think about this, there are some populations like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations that have uh, more vulnerability to this. And that's a tragic indictment of our country and historical violence. Would it include professional women? Absolutely. Every time I train to GPs, there would be a GP who would come up and tell me that she's been a victim every single time I train, whether there's five people in the room or 20. And it's uh, whenever I have this conversation, I end up thinking about a couple of girlfriends of mine mm. who, and interestingly enough, a male friend of mine. And I, th- this is, it's a totally different conversation, mm. really. But it, I, I just want to put that in as part of this conversation because whilst the majority of cases women are the victims and the children are the victims of this, there there are smaller numbers of cases where it is the man and the violence is usually emotional, it can be financial. It's it's often not physical but but it's yeah. it still manifests itself in similar symptoms it, to what we've been talking a- about. Absolutely yeah. and it occurs in same-sex relationships absolutely. as well but more women yes. die yes. <laughs> and yes. are injured yeah. and... Um, have have greater consequences, and, but- and this girlfriend of mine. The, th- the thing I was going to say is that the smartest person I've ever met. I mean, honestly, I've known her since primary school, and she she's. And there's about seven people, by the way, if you're trying to narrow that down, that I've still friends with since primary school. So try and narrow that down. But I've known her since primary school. Incredibly smart, j- just a, a brilliant, creative, wonderful, highly geared, professional person who uh, sat down with me and another friend at one point and we were just sort of chatting about our spouses and I, I, I don't even know how it came up. And she just mentioned a couple of things and we kind of went, uh, what did you yeah. just say? And the circumstances of her life were just extraordinary and we couldn't believe it and we were just going, you, you, you have to get out. You have to get out now. And she had money, friends, family, support. It was education. still the harder education, still the hardest thing that she's ever done. Yeah. So, so, so it's a hidden a, epidemic. It's a hidden so epidemic. So that's my next question. I mean, what you identified it, but how do we get it out there? How do we deal with it? How do we care for the people who are the victims? And how do we stop the perpetrators? Okay, I can tell you what we're trying to do. Good. So I've moved on from it's an epidemic yeah, okay. and it's causing trouble of and, and that there's male victims. But it's, a lot of people listening to this would not realise just okay. how So then, then part of the thing is that people may or may not be recognising that what they're in is domestic violence. Sometimes they come from families. So we've been doing um, two large trials. The first trial was in general practice where we screened for women who are afraid of their partner. So this is a different study again. And 12% across many practices of women were afraid of their partner. We then asked half of them to come to the GP. And the GP had been trained to help them to recognise what's happening to them, not to say you must leave because actually they're nowhere near ready to leave. No. So so some of them are not ready to admit that what they're experiencing is abuse. And part of the, you know, 
pathway to safety and and well-being is to say, I've got a problem. It's not my problem. It's actually someone else's behaviour, but this is what the problem is. And then you work with them to realise that it's affecting their health. And then you get them to some really good resources with people who are specialists in the area who are really good at helping them. And there's a basic mnemonic that might help some okay. of the listeners and yourself. Okay, it's called LIVES. L-I-V-E-S. So, yep, yeah, and it's from the World Health Organisation. You said that before. Yeah. And basically, I think a lot of people could do this. You need to listen. You need to inquire about needs of that person. And it may not be what – it might surprise you what it is. It might be housing, but it might be parenting. Just asking what do they need. What, what would, do they need? Yeah. Validate their experience. Mm-hmm. That's, that is something that's common. It is something that shouldn't be happening. You do need to assist them to enhance their safety. And if you're someone who, who can't do that, you know, you don't know the skills for that. But I taught the GPs how to assist women to have safety discussions. And with their partner? No, 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 no. Who no, are they no. having that conversation so with? So I meant, I meant I assisted the GPs to discuss it with the women. Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm, I'm thinking of friends and family here yes, who yes. may not know that. But, of course, there's resources where they can send people. And then the last is just offer to support them. So stay with them because it takes a woman about five times before she actually escapes these sorts of relationships. She might go to her mother's overnight or she might go somewhere else. So it's that basic support. And and now we're translating that to a technological tool called I Decide About My Relationship, trying to empower them. And we use the same techniques but online. So where is that available? It's just coming to the end of the trial. It's not freely available okay. at the moment, but um, we'll be trying to publish our findings soon and I could come back and tell you yeah, about it. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So, so just the whole idea of I decide about my relationship, can you just expand a little bit on that and the sorts of offerings that would be available? Okay, so it's got three modules and one of them is assessing whether they're self-reflecting on their relationship. We're asking them what behaviours happen and a bit like you said with your friend, um, Actually, we give them feedback. We, we, we give them an algorithm that, that I mean, it, the computer does it so that it says to them, actually, we think you're experiencing quite serious abuse mm-hmm. and we think that it's affecting your health. So or similar it, to what but, the GPs might but say. But it might also say the, there, there, was a, there was a small issue in terms of being unable mm. to, conf- you mm. know, you're scared of confrontation, you need to have these conversations. So it, is there a, this kind of a spectrum, I'd imagine, is yeah. there? So m- many women are scared to have a conversation with their partner. Um, because these people are afraid of their partner. Yep. And so that's not what we suggest. We suggest that they actually talk to some family and friends, get a reality check. Like one of the women in it said, oh, this, I decide about my relationship. It's like just talking with a good set of girlfriends, just exactly like you just did. And, and then, and that, that point you just made, I think, is terribly important. When we talk about support, we often uh, in relationships, we often talk about relationship counselling. Hmm. But when there's violence or abuse relationship counselling is not the right way to go. And I think that's a really important thing for people to understand. Because the, the, because of what Kelsey just said, people are afraid of their partners yeah. going to... So they're never going to say anything going that's Going to your practitioner with that in partner that room. Yeah. is often actively unhelpful yeah. and generally the wrong thing to do. Yeah. 
And then there's a danger assessment in there where we, again, feed back to them about the danger. And then we've got action plans where catered to whether they're um, their danger level, their level of abuse, whether they've got children, their postcode, and whether they're thinking about leaving the relationship, staying in the relationship, or contemplating leaving. So we tailor it all to that. We give them some suggestions of what to do. I know that in some instances, even logging onto such a website yes. is fraught Absolutely. and being able to access that information. I've had people give me really good advice about that, which is that a good place to go is a library. Yes. So about a third of the women were accessing it in a library or at a workplace. Yeah. We give very um, clear technology advice about, um, you know, it's unsafe with um, their browser to be leaving it, you know, because you can see what the history is. And Domestic Violence Resource Centre Victoria has got really good tips for how to stay safe online because we don't want women going offline. And for, for this project, there was a login and things. And there's clever ways. People are hiding apps behind calculators and you know other things, so and there's something too. If you're already on, if you're on a page and the and your mm. partner comes in, that you can you, you just click something and immediately it yeah. Comes, so we goes had to a clothes site or something, you know. Yeah, yes. yeah, we had all that. So yes. so we also debate this thing like technology can be used to abuse, Absolutely. but we think technology can reach women who um, don't want to come into the GP or you know go somewhere else. Yep. And so particularly for rural women and disabled women, yes. it's a good thing. Can you tell me uh, what happens with your obligation? to report children at risk under the Child Youth Families Act. You know, you've yeah. got a mandatory obligation like other professionals to report. How, how does that affect the therapeutic relationship with the patient? Look, this is a really difficult area. In Victoria, um, the um, uh, mandatory reporting is if there's physical or sexual violence where there's not a protective parent um, and there's risk of significant harm. So in other um, states, it's broader than that, got some emotional abuse in it. And in other places, it's actually got experiencing adult domestic violence within mm. the child abuse but legislation. not in Victoria. Not in Victoria. So um, I think that, that um, the sexual abuse is obviously ha- really hard for us as GPs to pick up. I'm sure Nick will agree with me. But there's actually really good resources at the Royal Children's around that and, and, and you know, doing that. When you're saying... Um, Often we're dealing with the protective parent, often the mother. Mm. And so uh, that's a different situation. Um, and sometimes they're separated and divorced as well. But if the, if the protective parent mentions that the other parent is engaged in sexual yeah. uh, misconduct or assault of the child, you then have an obligation absolutely. to notify. And, and, and you and, have to explain that to the mother. Yes, absolutely. Um, we, we absolutely have to do, and we often work quite closely with that mother around that. And, and of course, sometimes it does cause trouble, but we have, to, we have to do that. I would have to say that if we referred every single woman, mm. in, uh, every child where there was domestic violence, we would overwhelm the already overwhelmed yeah. child protection services. There's something called Child First in Victoria mm. that is for the vulnerable children. But I would have to say that the, the most damaging place for children at the moment is the family court. Mm. Mm. Really? Why, why do you say that? Well, I think that there's been um, there's been changes where family violence is supposed to be spoken about. The Act changed so that people um, could raise this issue in issues where there's child custody cases. But in fact, I think that's really hard when lawyers haven't been trained. I mean, GPs haven't been trained generally either. I'm not 
picking on a particular profession. But I think that often uh, women get advice to not raise the issue because they're seen as a a, a non-cooperative parent. Mm. By the judge. Mm. And by, yeah. And as a result, the children... Their shared custody. Yeah, so so often sometimes uh, I've got some anecdotal cases, but also some qualitative research by others where children are going to fathers that um, are, have been abusive to the mother, and in that situation, fifty percent of cases there's overlapping child abuse, and we don't have any evidence for for the child abuse, and so the judge orders the children to go to the parent equally, the parents equally. And, uh, but the ch- judge is meant to act in the best interest of the child. But if they don't have the information, yeah. why would they, they couldn't yeah. do that? And, and often the other thing is that I think the court-appointed psychologists and psychiatrists have not had training in family violence and the family court report writers. And um, I think that we everybody needs training, you know. There's an advertisement that's been on television in the in the cinemas, um, horrible, horrible one. I don't know if you've seen it, which uh, with it's a not okay. young, young man getting his kid to kick a ball that hits the wife in the head, and it's it's just awful. But I'm very interested in where that impetus comes from. Is there, is there any evidence that you know of that making advertisements about domestic violence actually changes anything? Look, I think people are drawing on other public health campaigns. They're drawing on the smoking campaigns and gambling. the quick programs and the gambling. And, uh, you know, basically there's a public health issue. We need to um, do primary prevention, which is awareness like that, respectful relationships in school work, um, calling out gendered and sexual harassment and things like that, gendered attitudes um, against women, and, it, and also um, violence condoning. So that's primary. Then we come in as GPs and others, like um, teachers or childcare workers, as early intervention, identifying it early. And so then do, obviously there's the response end. So, do, so what am I doing wrong? I've known you for 20 years. I've heard this for so long and I take it all on board and I think I'm doing the right thing. And at work, I think I'm asking the right questions. But not 10% of the women that I know are going through domestic violence, not 5%. What am I doing? Disclosing. That's what I'm asking because Mm. I think I'm doing the things that should facilitate disclosure. I think I'm doing the things looking for it in the right kind of way. I've done the Kelsey Hegarty training course (laughs) and yet still I'm not getting data. Is it because you're male? I'm I'm asking Kelsey Mm. if she knows. What am I doing wrong? Why why are my data so different from yours? I'm just going to answer in a funny way because we did this study that showed that if the communication skills of the male GPs were equal to the female GPs, that disclosure was the same. I don't. I know you've got really good communication skills, Nick. So I think it might be that um, particular women aren't ready. If you probably audited yourself, you wouldn't be asking consistently. I don't ask consistently. So you, you think you're asking because you asked more than before, but you're probably not. We know that women need to be asked and feel like it's a safe and confidential private environment. So they'd be worried that you're, you know, is there shared notes with the partners? Because, you know, do you know the, the, the partner? Do you know the perpetrator? Um, all those well, things would the, be... Yeah, do you treat the yeah, perpetrator? Yeah, would, you know, there'd be a lot of other barriers that wouldn't be about your communication skills. And is there time? I, I, I'm asking that because this is something that it would be very difficult, I think, for a woman to, like, you know, if you just 
ask a question, is everything okay at home, which sometimes my GP will ask, which, you know, mm. I, I think it's fairly obvious that I'm fine, but uh, it, it, but she will ask that because that's what she does. But it's, and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and that's, mm. then it's not pursued. And and how? Why would you pursue it? You know, in what? It's so such you a would, difficult conversation to have. It is, but it's it's actually doable. And so you, you would do it if the person looked really anxious, and you would say, actually, um, you know, are you feeling okay at home? You say yes, but I, I I often ask people. I ask lots of people. You know, just how safe they feel at home. How afraid are you of your partner, you know? And so the person goes, no, you, you know, and we know that women find that acceptable. Okay. Absolutely acceptable. So that's a very kind of, that's quite a blunt question. Mm. So be as blunt as that. It, you know, intermixed with the person's answers. Yes. Um, Do people get defensive? Look, no, without, no. Without necessarily any evidence at all. I mean, it just would be a patient who came in so with, would, with feeling they might have the flu or they've twisted their ankle, but you would then raise it. No, they they have to have some signs. That's yeah. what right. I'm saying. That yeah. we we are case finding. They've got they've got chronic pain. They've got um, right. chronic gastrointestinal symptoms. Their ch- child's a bedwetter. They've got they come frequently. They've got um, headaches and and they're depressed and anxious. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're not. I'm not recommending screening. Right. Yeah. Interesting. By the way, the Domestic Violence Resource Centre Victoria is dvrcv.org.au and if you are in an abusive situation or you know somebody who is, 1-800-RESPECT is the number to go with, which is 1-800-737-732. But just remember, 1-800-RESPECT. And, of course, in an emergency, triple zero is your friend. Kelsey, where's the next step on this? The next step is to intervene early with men who use violence. Um, and we're developing up some technological tools and training GPs to start to ask the, have the hard conversations with men. So asking them, you know, what happens when you argue? You know, how does your, how does your partner feel? How do you choose? What might feel? they present with? You know, you, you mentioned some it's of the things that you'd be looking for. Quite interesting. Yeah. They present with depression Similar and things. anxiety and chronic pain because actually some men, I don't mean there's some men who you couldn't reach, but many men, it, they don't, it's not what they want to be doing. And if you can reach them, and GPs is a good place, but also online is another good place. Can you imagine having that conversation, Nick? I can. Again, I'm aware that I probably don't do it anything like enough. Um, so there we go. I've learnt yet again. Yeah. How do you do it online? You say you could do it. So similarly, you would be asking um, how we recruited women online was to say, are you worried about your relationship? Yeah. And these men are worried about their relationship. There's so much more that we can need, need to talk about this. Come back the next like the next phase of this um, this important work that you're doing, Kelsey. Thank you for coming in and telling us about it. Professor Kelsey Hegarty, GP and researcher specialising in family violence. Some amazing work being done. Remember, 1-800-RESPECT is the number or in an emergency call, triple zero. Bill O'Shea, thank you very much. Nice to see you. Pleasure, Lindy. And Dr Nick Carr, nice to see you. We'll thank see you, you again very soon.